This podcast is about correcting the balance, whether it's something celebrated as good when it shouldn't be or the other way around. Or maybe the heroic tales of history just need to be knocked straight on their ass. Me, I just want to share the complete picture because that's when this whole thing gets fun. Warning, jokes and sarcasm may ensue. Welcome to Prick the Balloon. Hi, I'm Mike Vance, and welcome to episode number nine, number nine, number nine of Prick the Balloon. This is the first one I'm doing in the new year of 2024, and I'm following one of my resolutions to piss more people off. Ah, just kidding. Y'all know by now I go way out of my way to be nice to everybody. (laughs) Oh, shit. This one has been on my mind for a while, and what better way to kick off a new year, right? I want to talk about political labels party ideology. Specifically, I'd like to historically rebut the most inane pile of steam and dog dookie that you will ever hear, or see, or smell. That is when terminally clueless, mouth-breathing right-wingers spew out nonsense about, well, Republicans are the party that freed the slaves, and Democrats are the pro-slavery party. Snort. Spit. That is exactly like walking around today and repeating the phrase, world champion Cleveland Indians. Well, that was true in 1948, but not anymore. They're not even the fucking Indians. Things change, Nancy. Coincidentally, 1948 was the year of the seismic shift among Southern Democrats. Coincidence? Hmm. Is there an evil conspiracy involving Bob Feller, Lou Boudreau, and three tramps in a grassy bullpen? If only. But we'll get to that later. The most important thing about political labels is to remember that what parties stand for changes dramatically over time. The only concepts that don't change are liberal and conservative. Even progressive has had a different connotation from time to time. And Lord knows that somewhere along the line, Eurotrash journalists flat-ass ruined the fine name of populists. But what everybody needs to know is that liberal and conservative are the only two words that you need to evaluate political history. In old Europe, and carried over into colonial everywhere, conservative almost always meant the church, and usually the army, which was often controlled by the church anyway. Conservative also means 99.9% of the wealthy people, because it was the status quo that made them wealthy in the first damn place. For example, for all of the very real concerns about income equality in America today, it was worse in France in 1788, the year before their first revolution. 90% of the nation's wealth was controlled by the top 10%, as opposed to just a measly two-thirds of our wealth in the U.S. currently. Drill it down to the top 1%, and they had 60% of the coin in pre-revolutionary France, while those bastards controlled just about a third of the filthy lucre here at home nowadays. On top of that, add in stocking garters, no bathing, leprosy, and an all-controlling church, and 18th century France was a shit show. To bring it back around to political parties, there were none. Also, no bumper stickers and no flood of spam in your inbox. It was rich people, royalty, and the church, then the bourgeoisie, then miles and miles of smelly peasants with no subway to move them anywhere. For all of the early talk about liberty and freedom from that kind of shit here in the United States, well, yeah, you could voice whatever political opinion you wanted, but you could only vote about it if you were a white male who owned more than the minimal amount of property. And if you happen to be black, you'd best think long and hard about even voicing that opinion. So as we go through the history of liberals and conservatives in America, don't forget that the masses don't even enter into things for a long damn time. 
but the illustrations of how political parties change their stripes starts right from the beginning. George Washington very famously cautioned against political parties, and it's clear that the Constitution didn't anticipate having them. Again, look at Europe or anywhere else, and you had cliques and factions and coalitions maybe, cabals, coteries, but no actual parties. That's because even when there was a parliament, like in Britain, the king really had the last say. Amazingly, the Brits didn't have their first political party until the 1830s. Before that, it was just this endless series of backroom deals and bribery, bad teeth, and showgirl scandals. And who was the first political party in the UK? The Conservatives, of course, the Tories, who will tell you that in spite of Americans clearly being ahead of them, the Tories are arguably the oldest political party in the world. And that's based entirely on the stick-up our collective asses being larger and stiffer than anyone else's. Our Constitution didn't even allow for a presidential ticket until 1804. The first few times, whoever came in second place became vice president, which probably made for some really pissed-off politicians. At least when you sign on to a ticket like Kamala or Quayle or Agnew, you know you're going to be totally irrelevant going in. I mean, the old system made Aaron Burr so mad he shot Hamilton just for snoring too loud. Technically, George Washington is the only president who didn't belong to a political party. In fact, he railed against political parties. When he left office in 1796, after two terms, he ran up a hellacious bar tab and gave a rousing farewell address. During his speech, he spent a good deal of time bad-mouthing political parties. Here's a quote. However they may now and then answer popular ends, they are likely in the course of time and things to become potent engines by which cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will be enabled to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of government. End quote. And of course, he's a hundred percent right. But unfortunately, we have this whole real world thing going on. In spite of Washington's own words, Throughout his years as first president of the United States, he generally sided with the Federalists. In Washington's case, that meant John Adams and Alexander Hamilton. Interestingly, it just occurred to me that both Adams and Hamilton got to be lead characters in hit Broadway musicals, and all Jefferson, the greatest founding father of all, got was a movie about him banging Thandie Newton. And who played Jefferson? Nick Nolte, for crying out loud. I'm surprised Jefferson's drunken mugshot hadn't shown up yet on Insta. Before Washington left office, there was already an opposition forming. They were called the Democratic Republicans, because why not lay claim to both of the operative words before anyone else can get them, right? Okay, at the time, let's be fair, they would have been referred to simply as the Republicans, and the term Democratic Republican came along a little later, but in the interest of not confusing the living shit out of everyone, including myself, we're going with the modern term here, Democratic Republican. Get over it. It started with these societies in various cities throughout the young United States, people who didn't like some of the national policies. These societies represented the liberals, who had been the ones demanding that the Bill of Rights be added to the Constitution a few years earlier. Imagine if the Bernie Bros actually formed clubs and added espresso and bowling. By 1793, when the British went to war with the now-revolutionary French, the Democratic Republicans had become an actual opposition party. So yeah, they were the liberals of the day, but they also strongly advocated free trade and free markets, so liberals who wanted unfettered capitalism. There were little quibbles, but mostly there were two especially big items, one domestic and one foreign. 
At home, the Democratic Republicans didn't like what Hamilton was doing to the economy by establishing a national banking and credit system. That was way too much central control to suit these liberals who tended to be large farmers and planters and Southerners. The other big thing was a very clear-cut foreign policy question. Do we support France in their war with Britain? The Democratic Republicans are saying, hey, do any of you ingrates remember 10 years ago? The French had just supported us in our revolution. We wouldn't even be a nation without the French. We'd still be a colony paying taxes to replace crazy King George's soiled underpants without even having a say in the matter. And this Democratic-Republican faction wanted to go to war on the side of the French, not only to repay a favor, but because the French just had a revolution in hopes of becoming the world's second existing democracy. On the other hand, the Washington and Adams and Hamilton camp said, yes, we just fought the British, but they are our cousins, and that's where we came from, and we love them, and we love eating boiled eels, and William Pitt is really kind of hot when you see him in low candlelight wearing nothing but his wig, and he makes my loins ache. Kind of in response to this new liberal Democratic-Republican faction, the conservatives adopted the party label of Federalist because they were for federal as opposed to state power. They also had a major problem with giving non-landowners the right to vote. In fact, they weren't particularly keen on popular elections at all. Their power was greatest in New England and right around Charleston, South Carolina. Jefferson and Madison were the most visible of the Democratic Republicans, but Ben Franklin, who was roughly 183 years old by that time, and Thomas Paine were also big voices for that party. In addition to the names I mentioned already for the Federalists, they had the backing of John Jay, the third dude who wrote the Federalist Papers, and John Marshall, who was the first powerful Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Those are your team captains, Federalists, you will call heads or tails. Keep in mind that we are barely 25 or 30 years into the life of the new nation, and already, if you try to view things through a modern lens, your head will blow up like the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. The conservative party, the rich people who want to stay rich, is in favor of big government, and against going to war, and is strongest in the big cities. The liberal party, the one for open elections that include at least poor white males, is for small government, but in favor of free trade and crazy-ass free markets, and their strength comes from rural areas and farmers. When the Brits start stopping American ships under threat of blowing them to smithereens and stealing sailors to join the British Navy, it was the liberal, James Madison, who wanted to do something about it. And it was the conservative Federalists who opposed the war, because it might cost them money in the mills and shipping businesses. Ultimately, that lack of national gonads doomed the Federalists. They never won the presidency again after John Adams. By the way, you remember what I said about the Democratic-Republicans being the ones fighting for the Bill of Rights? It was Federalist John Adams who passed the Alien and Sedition Acts, which restricted the freedoms of press and speech. So there you get the nuts and bolts of what doesn't ever change about conservatives and liberals. Conservatives want the status quo to keep them rich, and the liberals want more power for the people. And I'm talking about overall policy, not debating individuals, but I will say this. No matter what kind of rank idiocy they get a segment of the voters to buy into, the conservatives serve one interest. Theirs. At this point in the American timeline is where you get to another phenomenon of history. Rifts in parties. The Democratic-Republicans went on this great roll. 
Jefferson, Madison, Monroe were all presidents in a row, and then John Quincy Adams, who would switch parties from Federalist to Democratic-Republican. But there was one faction of the party who thought these leaders were growing too big for their small government britches. Jefferson bought Louisiana. Madison came to believe, very rightfully so, that the national banking system was a good idea after all. So, in the crazy-pants election of 1824 that I had mentioned way back with Andrew Jackson— the Democratic-Republicans split in two. One faction backed John Quincy Adams, and one backed Andrew Jackson. The Jacksonian group started using the simpler name of just Democrats. And that dates to 1828, and that is before the 1830s, you stiff-legged English Tory ponces. On the other side, you ended up with this coalition of Adams supporters, that being John Quincy. It was the conservatives again, but they came from both of the old parties. There were a lot of Federalists, like Daniel Webster, who'd been looking for a new home, and a bunch of Democratic-Republicans like Henry Clay, one of the most resilient political animals in U.S. history. At first, these guys began using the name National Republicans. They briefly toyed with calling themselves Def Leppard. Smashing Pumpkins came up, but they settled on the Whigs. And that, of course, is spelled with an H, as opposed to the spelling for either Kristen or William Pitt's boudoir outfit. The Whigs, again, the wealthier people plus business owners, the growing middle class, and evangelicals. They wanted to save the national banking system, which Jackson and the Democrats still opposed. The Whigs did not want to expand the nation westward like the Democrats did, because that would run a big risk of adding unwashed hoi polloi to the voting rolls. They were in favor of protective tariffs. They believed in using government money to build infrastructure. And this part is interesting, and again, the antithesis of current politics. The conservative Whigs wanted congressional power, and the Democrats, like Jackson and later Polk, wanted greater presidential power. Lots of that was because Henry Clay was constantly trying to maneuver himself into being president, and that came to a glorious head when John Tyler, a Democrat who got mad at his party and switched to the Whigs, became president, then got all pissed off with Clay and left the Whigs while he was still president. Wowza! That is some Kardashian-level drama right there, huh? Although, to the best of my knowledge, John Tyler remained he-slash-him, and his 15 kids concur. By 1852... The Whigs had largely fallen apart because of slavery. And I'm not saying they were abolitionists, but the Northern Whigs did not want to add more slave states, and the Southern Whigs did. So, when the Kansas-Nebraska Act passed and repealed the Missouri Compromise, in other words, allowing slavery into the Western territories, a bunch of the Northern Whigs were done. They went all Thelma and Louise, jumping into their carriage and riding off to new adventures. A little aside about the Kansas-Nebraska Act. We'll talk about that down the road, not today. As always, you have to follow the money, because the entire thing amounted to Stephen Douglas, the Democratic senator from Illinois, wanting to run the Transcontinental Railroad through Chicago. Ah, there's that Chicago graft again. This all coincided with another big happening, and that was immigration. In the 1840s, there had been the famous potato famine in Ireland and then revolutions across Central Europe, and all of these people started fleeing their homelands with most coming to America. And horror of horrors, tons of these new immigrants were, gasp, Catholic. For a good 20 years, there had already been an anti-Masonic faction across the United States. 
These were hardcore conspiracy theorists who were convinced that these secret societies were just up to no good. Since the anti-Masons didn't know the triple-finger handshake, they figured these fiends must be sacrificing virgins and waiting for JFK Jr. to return from the dead and fake a moon landing. Even though they didn't know what any of that stuff was, okay? Especially virgins. But... In the 1850s, with all the immigration, you added other parties who started out as splinter groups whose entire identity was that they were against something. Like, we're not for anything, but boy, do we hate that. One of these grew into a short-lived prominence and started attracting some big names, and that was the Know-Nothings. Their actual name was the Native American Party, which got shortened to American Party, and if that's not reason to put this in a column against the modern use of the term Native American, then I can't help you. The way they got to be called the Know-Nothings is that they started as kind of a semi-secret anti-Catholic party, and the members were instructed that if anyone ever asked what the organization was all about, they were to say, quote, I know nothing. Yep, Hogan's Heroes before it was cool. So, the phrase know-nothing was a code that was being ridiculed, as opposed to Chip Roy's actual resume. The know-nothings were quivering in their boots because they, and only they apparently, knew of a plot in which the Pope would use these new German and Irish immigrants to overthrow America as we know it. Stop me if none of this sounds familiar. Didn't think so. The American Party nominated ex-president Millard Fillmore, who did not ever acknowledge being an actual member of the party. Fillmore, nonetheless, was their nominee for president in 1856, and he got 21% of the national vote. And that brings us to the formation of the Republican Party. I want to spend a little time on this, because this is where the whole Party of Lincoln thing comes from. There were all these former Whigs and know-nothings and fringe party dudes, and yes, dudes, because keep in mind, voting was still a complete sausage fest at this point. Anyway, all these various people needed a political home. The Republicans will tell you that they formed at a meeting in Wisconsin in March 1854, but it was really a series of meetings and rallies that ended up with an organizing convention in Pittsburgh in February 1856. And by that summer, they were running a candidate for president. So how did they manage things that quickly? They were cobbling together existing factions that already had a following. The bulk of these first Republicans were former Whigs, but the know-nothings immediately started seeing the Republicans as the more viable path forward. And here's the most telling story about the formation. Modern Republicans, not surprisingly, are not all keen on admitting that their history stems from a group called the know-nothings even though those are the official results of the Orange Goon's cognitive test. What modern Republicans will tell you, though, is that their first big success was electing Nathaniel P. Banks as Speaker of the House. Banks was this Harrison Ford-looking guy who was a really shitty Civil War general, but a truly fascinating politician. But here's the thing about his story, as the Republicans tell it, and it's more twisted than Drew Barrymore's bedsheets. Banks was elected to Congress in 1852 as a Democrat, but he split with them because he was also an abolitionist. Then, in 1854, he formally joined the Know-Nothings. It was as a Know-Nothing, an American Party member, that he was elected Speaker in 1855. But, also in 1855, Banks chaired a convention of anti-slavery Democrats, know-nothings, free soilers, and old Whigs looking into forming the Republican Party. 
but banks who just chaired the convention stopped short of actually joining the Republican Party. He remained a know-nothing, and when he won the speakership, it was on the 133rd ballot. 133rd ballot, and the voting took two months. If you think picking Mike Johnson was a cluster, wrap your brain around those numbers. To top it all off, Banks left Congress one year later to run for governor of Massachusetts, finally as a Republican. So, his first go-round in Congress lasted only five years, he got elected speaker, and he officially served as a member of three different parties. You probably picked up on the fact that some people were know-nothings, meaning they hated Germans and Irish Catholics with every ounce of their being, but they were also abolitionists who understood that enslaving Africans was a great wrong. Yes, that is a true statement. But you have to also understand that even among people who wanted to see slavery abolished were a ton of people who also adamantly believed that black people were not equal to white people. And when the Republicans nominated their first presidential candidate, they proved that by picking John C. Fremont. Fremont was this long-haired, granola-munching, hippie explorer and part-time questionable soldier who was a senator from California. Picture Jim Caviezel as Jesus. He had married the daughter of Thomas Hart Benton, one of the most powerful senators in Washington. That same year, the Democrats were trying to recruit Fremont as their candidate. But he announced that he was for a free soil Kansas and against the fugitive slave law. So he switched from being a Democrat and became the Republican nominee the same year. You see, there was a lot of fluidity going on in these parties. Their slogan that year, the Republican slogan was Free Soil, Free Men, and Fremont. And the whole Free Soil movement was not opposed to slavery because it was, I don't know, fucking wrong. They opposed it because they thought small white farmers shouldn't have to compete with rich planters who had enslaved labor. So the Republicans were united against the expansion of slavery, but all over the map about why and how far they were willing to go. The Republican Party platform of 1856 is fairly short as far as those things go, and they certainly had their share of weirdness in there since, quite literally, the highest word count in the entire document is specifically about how bad life is for the poor settlers in Kansas Territory. But by and large, they tout six things. They are against slavery or its expansion. They believe that polygamy is the twin of slavery in its barbarism. They love Kansas and apparently sunflowers and wheat. And really, 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 they want a transcontinental railroad. They are also against annexing Cuba through force, and they want to invest in improvements to rivers and harbors. At this point, you can clearly say that it was the Republicans who were the liberals on the issue of slavery and spending government money for civic improvement but they still had both feet under the covers with big business. Fremont, with all the former Whigs behind him, did really well in the North, and not surprisingly, got a big fat nothing burger in the South. He did finish ahead of Fillmore as the know-nothing candidate, but the real game-changer came the following year. The Dred Scott decision, authored by Southern pro-slavery, cousin-jumping, Democratic Supreme Court justices, stripped the northern states and territories of power to even set their own laws regarding slavery. And when we get to the cause of the Civil War, that looms huge. But for our purposes right now, it was pretty much the final coffin nail for the Whigs. What it also did for this political party's topic was change the entire landscape— 
which had already been heading in that direction, but it changed it into northern factions and southern factions. And it was in the next presidential election that things got more tangled than Dog the Bounty Hunter's back hair. The election of 1860 had four major candidates. The Democrats just flat split in half. There was Stephen Douglas for the Northern Democrats. He opposed the expansion of slavery, but was totally willing to compromise about it. There was John C. Breckinridge for the Southern Democrats, and he just wanted someone to hoe his fields and fetch him a mint julep without running off. And there was John Bell of the Constitutional Union Party that wanted to compromise and keep the Union together at whatever cost short of war. Bell had been a Jacksonian Democrat who became a Whig, then became a know-nothing before this Constitutional Union thing came along. The Republicans nominated Abraham Lincoln, who was a successful corporate lawyer who had been jockeying for higher office for years, by the way, not some backwoods bumpkin. Along with being anti-slavery, they were still looking to advance the northern corporate interest. That's from day one. And they picked Lincoln at the convention because he was against the expansion of slavery, but he was not yet on record as some kind of foaming-at-the-mouth abolitionist like the front-runner William Seward of New York. So they're still hedging their bets. Going by electoral votes, it wasn't even close. Lincoln won all of the northern states, plus California and Oregon, which at the time were the only states west of Texas. Breckinridge, the Southern Democrat, won almost everything in the South. The four states that were still on the fence were Virginia, Kentucky, and Tennessee, which voted for the Constitutional Union Party, and Missouri, which was the only state to vote for the Northern Democrat Stephen Douglas. But as far as our purposes, as far as a trend in political party history, the elections of 1860 and 1864 were total aberrations that you just toss from the pile like green M&Ms. Civil War profiteers from the North made a ton of money. Now, there were also some multimillionaire profiteers on the Confederate side, mostly running contraband cotton out through Mexico, but the big majority of these newly rich death merchants were in the North and these were largely Republicans. Not so gradually, they took over the party. Keep in mind that, yes, the Republicans eventually came around and truly united to end slavery. But at heart, they were still mostly the conservative Whigs who represented the bulk of the moneyed class. The majority of the Republicans after the Civil War supported rights for freedmen, and one consideration was that it was an incredibly smart way to expand their voting base. Don't get me wrong, I am not being totally cynical. There were still lots of politicians who felt that voting rights and citizenship and equal rights were the right thing to do. But there were also plenty of powerful men who saw those things as a means to an end. That end being more money in their pockets. That's the nature of politics. By the early 1870s, the general feeling of the Republican majority was that we've spent enough time on civil rights. Let's get back to our real business. And they proved that without a doubt by throwing the freedmen under about six buses and an Acme cartoon steamroller when they cut a deal to stop all interference with Klan-like activity in the South in exchange for certifying them as a winner for the 1876 presidential election. By the time you get to the Gilded Age, which is an especially brilliant phrase coined by Mark Twain to describe the time between the end of Reconstruction and the end of the 19th century, you had rich Republicans and right-wing Democrats. So if you're thinking in terms of a two-party system, those two left no liberal party between them. 
the Republicans were still to the left of the Democrats and would occasionally throw a bone like civil service reform, but by and large, they were conservatives protecting big money interests. I'd say that the middle 1870s was the last time you could call the Republicans liberals. In response to having two different forms of conservatives, we got the populists, progressives, and the People's Party. And I'll keep talking about them in the future because they're really important to modern American history. I'd even go as far as to say those third parties represent one of possibly two or three times when there were true and somewhat viable liberal choices on the ballot. But again, I'm reiterating that party identification and ideology is always fluid, so you get not just strange bedfellows when it comes to the issues, but more like bed hopping. It's Bob and Carol and Teddy and Alice and William Jennings Bryan wearing long johns and a wool hat. One thing that people talked about a lot, much like they do today, is the black vote, as if there was only the one. That's how they thought about it, as this easily manipulated monolithic voting block. And in the last third of the 19th century, that was probably true. The freedmen got the vote in the 15th Amendment, and they obviously supported the party that gave it to them. During Reconstruction, there were for the first time a slew of black politicians elected to office throughout the South, and they were all Republicans. And I single out the South because it was mostly confined there. Chicago did send an African-American to the state legislature in 1876, but in places like New York and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, the places that put the Republicans in power, they didn't send the first black man to the state capitol until the early 20th century. But after that election deal of 1876, the Republicans in the South lost most of their power. They cobbled together some makeshift local deals here and there with the People's Party or Farmers Alliance, but ultimately Jim Crow became the law of the land. And the Republicans quit giving a rat's ass about the black vote in the South because things like poll taxes and all-white primaries meant there really wasn't one. In other words, we don't need you any longer down there, and the Republicans became completely irrelevant in the South. In 1908, just to pick a year, they finished with 6.5% of presidential vote in Mississippi. In South Carolina, they couldn't even reach 6%. So, by the start of the 20th century, Teddy Roosevelt's flirtations with progressivism and moose notwithstanding, the Republicans were wholeheartedly and 100% the party of rich folks, and nobody whatsoever in either party really gave two shits about minority voters. Minorities had become the peat best of American politics. With history, you get to view the results from a distance, whereas when you look at current events, you don't always spot the changes and trends. It's tough because some people have those emotions about their political party just ingrained in family memory. And that's why you have people descended from abolitionists remaining Republican a century later, when the party was very clearly opposed to civil rights. When the Depression hit, the party of wealth and big money, the Republicans, were adamantly opposed to government intervention and broad financial assistance. And you know how that worked out for them, about as well as the Oscar hopes for Giggly. FDR won four terms in a row because people wanted and needed big government to help them out of the Depression and then get through World War II. But what you don't hear about as much is that there was this never-ending barrage of shit that FDR's right-wing and left-wing opponents flung at him like coked-up zoo monkeys. They were against every goddamn thing FDR came up with. He had left-wing critics that hated him, 
and right-wingers who were a coalition of Republicans and some Southern Democrats, and they thought these government programs were anti-American. The Republicans in the Northeast were calling FDR a traitor to his class and pointed out that if we start helping poor people, we'd have no one to muck out the stables or to stoop in the butler's pantry. Good God, man! One way to view the political landscape with New Deal-era liberals and the conservatives who fought them tooth and nail is that the American public went into defense mode. They chose survival. The elections evened off after the end of World War II, but you saw one party really emerge as liberals for the first time in a long time. Ultimately, though, once again, that led to a major party split and the cementing of the present ideological positions of the two major parties. For all of the labeling of FDR as this great liberal, he was really more of a centrist who believed in the power of government to do great things. FDR never lifted his teacup pinky to help blacks or do anything about civil rights unless Eleanor threatened to beat him with a hose. But his successor, Harry Truman, did. In July 1948, Truman ordered racial integration of the United States military. Prior to that, there were white units and black units, and though they might occasionally play baseball or football together, they were separate. When Truman announced that they would be serving side by side, the Southern Democrats blew out like a Kaleidos club at a Tex-Mex restaurant. At the convention later that same month, when Truman got the Democratic nomination and a pro-civil rights plank authored by Senator Hubert Humphrey of Minnesota got added to the party platform, 35 top Southern Democrats walked out. They were led by Governor Strom Thurmond of South Carolina and Senator Fielding Wright of Mississippi, and they ran back to their secret clavern, pulled on the hoods and robes, and created the States' Rights Democratic Party. States' Rights forever, by the way, is a hard and fast synonym for white supremacy. The press and everyone else started calling this new party the Dixiecrats. There was a lot of legal maneuvering, but the Dixiecrats managed to get themselves, the presidential ticket of Thurmond and Wright, listed as the official Democratic Party ticket in Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Arkansas. Everywhere else, they were a third party. They held a second Dixiecrat convention in Oklahoma City, the first had been in Birmingham, and they adopted a platform calling for segregation forever and declaring that either Truman or the Republican nominee Thomas Dewey, who also supported some civil rights, would establish a, quote, police nation in the United States. Police nation being used because no one had yet come up with the phrase deep state. Two little things of interest. In that election of 1948, there was also another third party, Henry Wallace, the FDR vice president who had been dumped from the ticket in favor of Truman four years earlier, ran as a progressive to the left of Truman and got roughly the same number of popular votes as Thurmond. But Thurmond carried the four states where they'd kicked the real Democratic Party off the ballot. No election since then has ever had the entire South vote Democratic. The second thing is Strom Thurmond himself. After being governor of South Carolina, he went to the U.S. Senate and stayed for 48 years. He was still serving in the Senate when he passed age 100, and his own South Carolina colleague admitted that old Strom had no idea where he was or whose hand that was in his pants. But look! After he died, Thurman's family admitted that Strom, at age 22, had a fling with the family's 15-year-old black housekeeper that resulted in a child. Yes, 
the guy that happily split his political party in two to avoid integration had a mixed-race child with an underage girl who worked for the family. A pre-Civil War storyline that became public in 2003. The Democrats had been enjoying one-party rule across the South for a century or more, and change doesn't happen overnight. You went through a period where some Southern states, Texas, Tennessee, Arkansas, North Carolina, maybe top of the list, had strong liberal Democrats and strong conservative Democrats. In 1952, you got enough erosion that Eisenhower, being a big war hero and all, carried four Southern states, Texas, Virginia, Tennessee, and Florida. But bottom line, those southern states were scrambling to hang on to segregation, and in spite of Truman, their DNA still told them that they were Democrats. Which brings us to the pivotal election of 1964. LBJ was the leader of the liberal Texas Democrats. LBJ had very famously and accurately said that John F. Kennedy was too conservative for his taste. LBJ, as Senate Majority Leader, had led the Civil Rights Act of 1957, and when he became president, he vowed to do the things that JFK would not push, namely real civil rights legislation and relief for the poor and elderly. His opponent, Republican Senator Barry Goldwater, was very publicly against these civil rights laws because he said it was, quote, a dangerous expansion of federal power, end quote. And that, my friends, I make you a very good deal on this rug special price, is exactly word for word what the pro-slavery folks were saying 110 years earlier, word for word. At that point, Lyndon Johnson had already signed the Civil Rights Act on July 2nd and was making good on his promises to pass more sweeping civil rights bills. And those conservative Southern Democratic voters, well, they all found new homes as Republicans. Those Southern voters may not have carried Republican economic policy deep in their hearts, but they were united on segregation. They were united on hatred. In 1964, the Republicans even put this into writing. It was called their Southern strategy. And quite simply, it said they would pivot from trying to make inroads with black voters in the North to going all out for white voters in the South. Those are the same voters who had just lost their shit over LBJ's Civil Rights Act. The Republicans deliberately and loudly started using phrases like states' rights and small government, and somewhat more quietly, they started pushing against civil rights in favor of continued segregation. Not at all coincidentally, that was the same month that Strom Thurmond officially switched parties and became a Republican. LBJ saw to it that the Civil Rights Act was passed with strong bipartisan support in July. But bipartisan support in Congress did not equal support among the voters. Lady Bird Johnson went on a four-day train trip in October of 1964, campaigning for her husband through the Deep South. People were so worried about her safety that there was a special government train that traveled five minutes in front of Lady Bird's train to make sure there were no bombs on the track. Top politicians in six states, all still Democrats on paper, turned down the invitation to appear in their home state with the First Lady. She made 47 speeches in 47 towns. She endured booing crowds, had her voice completely drowned out with catcalls in Columbia, South Carolina, and again in Charleston, where people also symbolically shut their blinds and curtains as her car passed. When the votes were counted, Goldwater and the Republicans won six states. 
They were Goldwater's home state of Arizona, plus South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. The heart of the Confederacy and states' rights all over again. And that right there, the election in 1964, is what cemented the Democrats as liberals and the Republicans as anything from actual conservative to holed up in a rural compound with a van load of canned beans. Two times, roughly a century apart, you had race as the most defining issue in American politics, and both times you had a clear party that was liberal on the subject and a clear party that was anywhere from conservative to knuckle-dragging. The first time, it was the 1860s, and it was Republicans on the right side of history. And the second time, it was the Democrats. I know that my personal extended family politics is similar to millions of other Americans. In other words, it's all kind of jacked up. My dad's family, European-American Protestants who date back to Jamestown and Annapolis in the 17th century, were interesting. There were plenty of slaveholders early on, including a few with some real money, But the branch that moved off into the wilderness of Kentucky in the 1780s turned into abolitionists who fought for the Union. They were hardcore Republicans, abolitionist Republicans, who were truly the party of Lincoln. There's a story about my grandfather, Pop Vance, that he met another guy named Vance who lived a county over in rural central Kentucky. And Pop said, well, maybe we're related. Do you like to fish? And the guy said, yeah. Pop said, I like to fish. Do you hunt? The guy said, yeah. Pop said, I like to hunt too. Are you a Republican or Democrat? The guy said, Democrat. Pop said, nope, not related. When my dad, who was an older dude by the time I was born, first got a chance to vote, he cast his first presidential vote for Wendell Wilkie. He voted for a Republican every time, every election for 20 plus years. And then one day he reached a point where he started thinking about things pretty sure he cast his first vote for a Democrat for Senator Lloyd Benson. Meanwhile, there was my mom's family, immigrants and Indians, who had voted straight Democrat forever. Today, on that side of the family, I have exactly two cousins that I can call and commiserate with about politics. The rest are voting a Republican ticket. Parties change. Values change. People who make up the parties change. The one thing that is constant is liberal and conservative. I'll leave you with this parting thought. Sure, yeah, we as a nation need to study policy and understand the issues over the personalities, but let's face it, that's never happened in the previous 235 years, so why should it start now? At the very least, we need to be honest about words. It would be really groovy if Americans could go back to comprehending what liberal and conservative mean and assigning them appropriately. Words matter. And that may be as simple as screaming to high heaven every time you hear somebody say that ripping screaming children from the arms of their loving gay parents is called the Defense of Family Act. Republicans claim to be the party of small government, but they have run up far larger spending deficits than Democrats over the past 50 years. And they want to have poll watchers nibbling pork rinds and a barca lounger at the foot of every marital and hospital bed. They talk about small government and local control, except in cities led by Democrats, in which case they pass laws preventing the actual elected local officials from doing the very things they were elected for. Republicans don't have a monopoly on hypocrisy, but they sure as hell are hoarding it like COVID toilet paper. Thanks to them, the hypocrisy shelves are pretty damn picked over. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out my website at MikeVanceWriter.com. Prick the Balloon is copyrighted by Mike Vance, all rights reserved.